Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. At the end of his gospel, John sums up his purpose. And he says his purpose has been twofold, belief in Jesus and salvation then. This means that the whole of the gospel is describing John's soteriology or his doctrine of salvation. And each of its parts, it's describing atonement. And by atonement, we just mean how we're united to God through Christ, how we're restored to relationship. And so let's look at John 20, 30 to 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so we might say the atonement theory or the salvation theory of John, maybe from the prologue in, you know, it's echoing Genesis, that here is new creation in the beginning of Genesis repeated in John, It's tying together creation and redemption. And then the it is finished, pronounced from the cross, it brackets the ministry of Jesus, his whole life and death. And within the first and final words of creation, you know, here is recreation through the sun. Maybe we can think of the tree of the cross as a planting of a new tree of life. That's certainly the way that Jesus describes himself as the source of life. In chapter 16, Jesus describes this new life as springing from birth pangs. He's describing it as a new birth, and he's actually talking about his own death. And so he describes in 1622 that there will be lamenting surrounding his death, But this lament will give way to an unending joy, an uninterrupted joy. And that's really the way the gospel describes life throughout. That this life also will have the same quality, that it cannot be disrupted. It will not be despoiled by death. You know, as it says in the prologue, darkness cannot overtake this light. And it is a life then that has overcome death and is eternal life in that twofold sense that it is ongoing, eternal, undisruptible. It's the life of God. And in chapter one, you know, there is the depiction of the first week of Jesus' ministry. He calls the various disciples. And there is this picture of a new humanity that's forming. Throughout John, he's going to talk about this new humanity or a new abiding place, that there is a new dwelling. And, you know, this was the temple itself, that God and man meet in the temple. This is what the early church father, Irenaeus, called recapitulation. 
he goes back through as in Romans 5 you know the the second Adam goes through all of the stages of life like the first Adam but he redoes them he redoes conception he redoes birth he redoes each section of a person's life and that he creates then a new race and at the head of this new race is the second Adam and life then you know this is Paul's picture in Romans 5 that the new Adam will be characterized by life whereas the first Adam is characterized by death and these two Adams then really in Irenaeus's own description they're not really separate but they're conjoined what was begun in the Adam of the dust he says is completed in the Adam of spirit he says the two Adams are on a continuum for never at any time did Adam escape the hands of God that God has been creating man from the beginning and this is being completed in Christ it's the father speaking let us make man in our image after our likeness that is he's continuing to create through the second Adam so what was begun in the first Adam is completed in the second Adam Irenaeus says and for this reason in the last times not by the will of flesh nor by the will of man but by the good pleasure of the father his hands formed a living man in order that Adam might be created after the image and likeness of God there is a picture of salvation we were created to be in God's image and in Christ that becomes true that becomes complete Irenaeus describes his theory he calls it recapitulation but maybe it's just as much a kind of finishing as a redoing maybe it's a kind of creation completion in chapter 2 you know if there is a singular theological point there's a lot of happening in chapter 2 of John but the cleansing of the temple points to Christ is ordering the cosmic temple and this is heralded by the wedding supper of the lamb you know that's the the picture is this wedding supper looks forward to that future supper being celebrated in the book of Revelation and the new wine then represents a new age and all of this is kind of proleptically offered up at Cana maybe we would call this the early church had a, a theory of atonement called Christus Victor and the idea is that Christ is defeating sin death and the devil and there is certainly that reference in chapter 2 you know Jesus says he's really referring to his crucifixion destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up but here is the new cosmic creation but as he describes it in chapter 12 it's with this lifting up it's with his crucifixion that the prince of this world will be cast out you know in John there is no exorcism there is no demon possession no exorcism but maybe the whole book is a picture of an exorcism in which the prince of this world is being cast out and it says in 1232 it says that I will draw all people to myself and actually that's probably not strong enough we probably need to read that I will drag all people to myself all people will be brought 
to the cross. And the emphasis really is not so much on what is defeated in chapter 2, on what is overcome, and certainly that's important, but it really is upon this new temple construction, a new order of life. There's the negative, there's the doing away with sin, but there is this picture of this positive new temple, new people, new humanity. And of course in this cosmic vision it's made personal with Nicodemus and the woman at the well. That is, he's having these private conversations. The woman at the well is the longest conversation that he has with anybody. And there's direct reference again in the conversation with Nicodemus to the cross. And it's depicted in this instance not so much as driving out the devil, it certainly does that, but it's pictured as therapeutic. It's pictured as a cure. He uses the illustration. You remember when the Israelites are in the wilderness and the serpents come in or biting them and Moses lifts up the bronze serpent and they say, you know, look at the bronze serpent and you'll be cured of the poison. Jesus says, as Moses lifted up in 3.14 to 15, he lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. What is the best cure for snake bite? Well, actually, they take snake venom, and they use that to create a, a cure. My father always wanted me to go into the snake venom business. I never was quite sure what <laughs> to, to milk rattlesnakes, but it's, it's a way of creating an antidote. I don't know if you know the old saying, you know, that you take a little bit of the hair of the dog that bit you and it will cure you of the bite. I don't know if that's true and I don't think that's exactly what Jesus means here, but it's a picturing of a reordering of life in which the sting of death, literally the venomous death-dealing nature of sin, is accounted for. And the cross, like the bronze serpent, is an antidote to death through trust in the cure that God offers. And then there is the same lifting up as in chapter 12 in chapter 3. In this instance, the focus is upon the individual believer rather than a universal deliverance. Jesus appropriates the sign of Moses, but look what he says in chapter 3. He says something very interesting in verse 13. He says that he alone has ascended to the Father. That no one else has ascended to the Father. Wait a minute. Didn't Moses, didn't, you know, the Jews had the, the idea that Moses ascended directly. In the Old Testament, we have the picture of Enoch and Elijah. They're all claimants to heavenly ascent. And Jesus says they've not ascended. But only one has ascended. And only one has descended. That is, he's claiming to be greater than all of these. And the ascent seems to be, you know, how do you ascend? It seems to be through being lifted up. That is, on the cross, through the death that he died. None of them have conquered death, and none of them have access to the power of eternal life, which defeats death. And so the lifting up through death, qualifies the nature of the life that Christ offers. He's giving us eternal life. Chapter 5, the man at the sheep pool. 
the paralyzed man, it says, can find no human in 5.8. No one to help him. And of course, Jesus throughout is depicted as here is the true human. Here is the true humanity. And here is the man who can help you. Here is the man who can heal you. And Christ tells the man to rise in 5.8. It's the language of resurrection. And take up your bed. And of course that brings on the condemnation of the authorities who claim that both this man and Jesus are breaking the Sabbath law. You can't carry any burden on the Sabbath. And so though there is no resurrection as of yet in the book of John, the miracle is treated as a kind of sign of resurrection. And I think all of the miracles, isn't that really what we're ultimately pointing to? That here is the one who not only has the power to cure of sickness, but the power to cure of the ultimate sickness. Jesus says, For just as the Father raises the dead in 521 and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. He's making divine life available through his work. That's the picture of the temple, right? What's that temple all about? Well, it's God provides life. That was the emblematic of the sacrifices. They're all echoing the sacrifice that, you know, Abraham took his son up. And God then provides life. And of course, the true sacrificial life is that of Christ, that God is giving us life. He's making divine life available through his work. You know, that my father and I have been working up to this time. And he presumes to demonstrate in the miracle the unfolding of the Sabbath work. It's not that God got all tired out and, you know, he's kind of resting up for the ages. No, it's that the creation work is given way to the redemption work of day seven, the Sabbath day, and this work is unfolding and culminating in the work of Christ. And this healing is on a continuum then with the new life, new Sabbath life given on the seventh day in the redemptive work. You know, here is the ongoing completion of creation. The life of God is fully given and death is defeated. Now, when we say the word death, it doesn't have a singular meaning in John. You know, if you look at chapter 12, verse 24, he talks about the kernel that is planted must die in order to be raised again. The seed that are the kernel of grain. And this then produces new life. So there is this salvific picture, but there is also the wrong kind of death. Even if it is of the sacrificial kind, Peter is willing to lay down his life for Jesus, right? He's willing to lay down his life, and the life is as many people as he can kill in protecting Jesus. That's really what he's doing when he chops off the ear of Malchus. I don't think Peter's a very good swordsman. He was going for his head. And he would have gone for as many heads as he could if Jesus had not stopped him. This is a betrayal in Jesus' own picture. The two betrayers, you know, Judas and Peter, 
And of course, I think they're representative of all the apostles are set side by side, literally they're seated side by side, at the washing of the apostles' feet. And the particular dirt which they're cleansed of, it's certainly that of Judas. You know, here is the picture that the betrayer is among you. And they all turned to one another and said, Is it me, Lord? Surely not I. And of course, they're all imagining that they could be the betrayer. And it's from that foot washing in chapter 13 that the two betrayers go their separate ways. We trace the story of Judas and Peter and John. Judas's betrayal is pretty straightforward. It says that he's greedy. He's always worried about the money. He's the keeper of the money bag. And he sells Jesus, betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. But I think that John is also depicting Peter as a kind of betrayer. You know, after the foot washing, Peter says, Lord, I'm willing to lay down my life for you. And of course, we know what he means. He means he's willing to lay down his life sword fighting or in a kind of glorious end. He's really trying to prevent Jesus' death. You remember when Jesus says, I must go up to Jerusalem and die. And Peter says, no, Lord. Peter's one of the few characters in the Bible that says, no, Lord. <laughs> he actually does that in Acts when the sheet is let down from heaven. And God himself says, rise and eat, Peter. And he says, no, God. And he's trying to prevent then the death of Christ. And that's why he pulls his sword. That's why he wants Jesus not to go up to Jerusalem. But Jesus says point blank, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Peter is just as much of the devil as Judas. This misdirected fallout, this misoriented willingness to kill and die, that gives rise to Peter's denial. He denies Christ three times in chapter 18. And Peter's betrayal, maybe it's of a different order than that of Judas. Is it somehow more acceptable? Or is his attempted homicide more acceptable to us because our sense is that killing for Jesus is more acceptable, more respectable maybe, than betrayal for greed? I don't think one is better than the other. And of course, Peter is a potential suicide. I really think when he betrays Jesus, he's a broken man. And that's why Jesus finds him. And gives him, you know, that's the end of the Gospel of John. Jesus says three times, and we think this is following the three betrayals, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And there's this threefold affirmation. I think it's a kind of undoing of the threefold denial. And the point is that with Judas and Peter, but with all of the apostles, there are a lot of ways to die. And not every way is the way that we're talking about when we're talking about dying with Christ. There's only one dying that is salvific. Jesus has already warned Peter, the one who would prevent me from facing death is of the devil. Get behind me, Satan. And ultimately, of course, in his manner of death, 
That's precisely what Jesus is doing. He's confronting death and the devil. The prince of this world is being cast out. The lifting up of the cross, however, the lifting up in resurrection, the lifting up of ascension, I think it's the lifting up of the life that he gives. We can see it with the man at this pool of Siloam, right? The sheep pool. It's connected to healing. It describes in most explicit terms, you know, after the healing of this man, Jesus says that he has life within himself like the Father in 526. For just as the Father has life within himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Resurrection, healing, therapy, making whole. They are all facets of the life that he gives. We can say they're all facets of salvation. As Jesus says in the book of Revelation, do not be afraid. I am the first and I am the last. You know, the Alpha and the Omega and the Living One. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. And so Christ's passage through death. He's dead, it says. He's become dead. But that opens up the risen quality of life, which is divine life. And he shares in the quality of life, the life of the Father. They both have life in themselves. They are both the source of life. And this is a life realized through death. That is, that death could not hold him. So I think the whole book of John may offer many sides to the saving work of Christ. You know, is it too much to call each of these stories a kind of facet of salvation? I don't think so. That's what John is saying. I've told you these things that you might believe, that you might understand who the Christ is, and that believing you might have life. And we've seen the many facets that this has. The life he gives is made evident in his healing ministry. You know, the paralyzed are raised up. It's on the order of resurrection. The blind are enabled to see. It's on the order of a spiritual sight. Jesus heals where life is defective. And he provides sustenance where life is short. He is the bread of heaven. And so there is a cosmic theme in Jesus' identity. Certainly that's there in the Logos. In the beginning was the Word behind creation. Who creates? Uh, it's certainly there in the picture of Jesus as true temple. But this cosmic salvation is inclusive of individual orientation. You know, there's consistent depiction of life. There's new life. There's spiritual life. And the accessing of this new life through a specific, you know, we have to reorient ourselves. This is baptism. This is the Lord's Supper. It's individual. It's corporate. It's cosmic. Atonement or redemption cleanses of death through life. It heals. It's spiritually therapeutic. It resolves the problem. Think of the woman at the well. It solves the problem of desire. Her desires are misdirected. And Jesus says, 
Here's the fulfillment of your desire. Here is the water that can quench your thirst. And so at the cosmic and individual level, death is displaced with life. So at the cosmic and individual level, death is displaced with life. Maybe we could call this new creation. Maybe with Irenaeus we'd call it recapitulation. Maybe we could call it what the first church called Christus Victor. Here is Christ's victory over sin, death, and the devil. Or maybe it's simply, here is the seventh day, the completion of the creation work that God began in Genesis. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.